1: Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pastor the Mic, dynamic voices for a diverse church powered by The Witness, a black Christian collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. And joining me as always is the president of The Witness, the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Blue Check Verified himself, Jamar Tisby. What's going on, brother?
2: Hey, man, just... Appreciate all our past the Mic listeners. Every time we get on the mic, it's great to talk to you, but it's also wonderful to think about the folks who are listening and all the positive feedback we get, uh, the ways that that God uses this podcast in just unbelievable ways. So just shout out to the PTM fam, man. Really appreciate y'all.
1: Yes. Shout out to the PTM fam. And if you're listening to this podcast, beyond subscribing, beyond liking, beyond sharing, beyond retweeting, beyond sending this podcast to your friends and your family and all the people that you know who would like this, I want to solicit that you pray for us, please.
2: Um, (laughs) we,
1: We are adulting hard and it is very difficult. And we've been talking, even before we hopped on the mic, we talked for about 30 minutes, 45 minutes about just personal burdens and cares and concerns. And so sometimes I was telling Jamar, we don't let you as listeners into that because there's a part of that we want to keep private, but then there's another part of that we want to say, pray for us. And if we got all these people listening to the podcast, the effectual fervent prayer, as they say in the King James of a righteous man avails much. So please use your effectual fervent prayer and pray for Jamar and I, um, tons of things going on, but coming out for him in January, we're trying to plan a conference, family expanding, all these crazy things are happening. So We solicit your prayers. And so if you're not able to give, if you're not able to share, if you're not able to do any of those things, if you pray for us, we appreciate that. And great is your reward in heaven. We may not know that you're praying for us, um, but we believe we'll feel those prayers and um, that the Lord will bless you for that.
2: Amen to that.
1: So I want to get into part two of last time we were recording, we talked about politics. We talked about kind of the racialized way in which our politics... I've been framed in some of the specific politicians. And since then, it didn't turn out any different than we thought it would. Right, Jamal? <laughs>
2: not at all.
1: <laughs> I mean, it was just pretty obvious what was going to happen. But we were talking about it and I'm like, man, maybe, you know, I've, that's kind of been my thing with politics. Man, maybe, you know, maybe it might not be the same way it's always been. And then typically it's the same way it's always been, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we we look at the progress made. So, for instance, last time we were talking, it was the uh, Mississippi Senate runoff, and of course, the Democratic contender. Lost, But at the same time, uh, he made a stronger showing than any candidate in like the past 30 or 40 years. And so looking at how um, people mobilized on the ground, the grassroots effort and how that might build momentum for the next race, you know, not really uh, picking a a party or anything, but just looking at the ways that even uh, the party that loses, what what. What happened? What What does it tell us about their formation and what might happen in the future?
1: And is there some sort of growth that we can take from that, right. you know, especially when it comes to the racialized narratives that one party or another might embrace and propose, that that would be something that we would kind of say, okay, well, if, if people are growing, able to identify, hey, this is wrong, we may not have been able to oust you in particular, but maybe we can pick a better candidate next time, maybe we can challenge you in the primary all those things could be growth potential. So I, I totally understand. But I also still think the same thing sometimes. I'm like, man, it's the same thing every time. And, and these political shows that make it seem like there's, man, it's, there's intrigue and there's all this and you're just watching the votes and you're like, ah, I got to stop watching this. Um, so I, I'm curious because we were talking today um, about how we were going to express our own way of thinking about politics, because that's the whole point of this episode. How do we think about the political process, political elections? And so I think it would be helpful for people who don't know and for people who do for us to kind of give a history of our own political beliefs. So Jamar, what's the history of your own politics? And I'm not saying you got to go down each issue. I'm just saying the history of, of how you were introduced to politics what you formerly believed and has that changed at
2: all? <laughs> uh it's funny you asked that because
1: yeah, that- that laugh by Jamar, uh, that laugh I love. It. No, <laughs> yeah, no, it's that's not really like trouble. The,
2: it's, no, it is.
1: You did that same one on the Donald Trump episode. Uh, on the Donald <laughs> Trump episode, you did that same laugh.
2: <laughs> no, it's the irony as a student of history. I have a horrible memory personally. Like, it's very hard for me to trace uh, my own personal timeline on any topic. Um, I remember being in, I guess, elementary school, and uh, Ross Perot was a, a independent candidate, and I was like, "Yeah, this dude, he sounds cool because he was a, a millionaire. Um, he was out of the mainstream. He just and 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 when he first got in the race, it seemed like he actually had a chance. Then he pulls some old wild stuff, withdrew, and then jumped back in." Uh, but that, I think that's the earliest memory I have of being interested in, uh, voting. We had a little mock election at our school, all that good stuff,
1: but then. Bro, I got to talk about these mock elections, man. Did you have So you had, listen, I did. So I remember I was in third grade and it was, I think it was Clinton Dole. So it was Clinton versus Bob Dole. And then I think Ross Perot was running that one again too. And I just remember, we voted and then I stepped outside. It was on election day. We voted. And it's funny because uh, how how do third graders know how to vote? Like what does that even mean <laughs> for us? Like we're thinking, does the girl next to me like me? Like this that's that's what we're, thinking about. we're thinking about uh, Yeah, it was lunch. Like, what do we pl- what game are we playing in recess? Like, that's what we're thinking about. But they're like, Oh, this is a serious thing, keep it private and all this. I'm like, yo, what is this? Like anyway, so I, I left school early that day, I remember. And my teacher, she followed me out out of the classroom and she was like, I just want to let you know, Bob Dole won. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, then she was like, yes, yes, she had like tears <laughs> in her eyes and everything. And I'm like, what is this? Now I look back on, I'm like, yo, what? what was I doing? Like, what was I in? And so anyway, I just had to say that about these, these little mock elections. For these elementary school kids that don't even know what politics is yet.
2: Hey, but I'm a fan. So sooner the better. Get us involved in civics.
1: Um. Well, see, <laughs> yeah. Right, well, I'll, I'll,
2: I'll, I'll let you cook, and then I'll say what I said. I'll, I'll, I'll say I was rather uninvolved as uh, growing up in politics. I mean, I voted as soon as I could vote. I voted in certainly every presidential election and then every statewide election that I knew about, but I wasn't keeping tabs necessarily. Um, And then, I mean, just fast forward all the way up. It was really the 2016 presidential election that got me hooked on politics and following politics at the national and state level and the local level, too. Uh, All the way back in 2015, when, uh, you know, candidates were throwing their hat into the ring to be the representative for either the Democrat or Republican Party. And I was especially actually attuned to uh, the Republican primaries because of evangelicalism. And I was sort of surrounded by white evangelicals. And I think what happened, and this is what happened to me, I think what happens to a lot of people is you just sort of absorb the political beliefs of the people around you and the people you trust. And so, you know, very seldom in these circles would I hear explicit messages about politics. But to the extent that I did hear about any particular issue, it was always a very politically conservative view. It was always a a very um, white evangelical view. And as I started studying history, I was like, well, maybe we shouldn't just accept this. We got to filter this critically. And I'm looking at this slate of candidates. And so many of them are so problematic in so many ways, but especially on issues of race. And I'm just like, "Okay, where are Christians going to land in this? And so I started reading headlines constantly. And ever since then, I've been on it uh, as much as I can be. And so the 2016 election really got me involved in politics, and I've tried to follow it ever since, but we'll get into this further in the show, sort of what the framework is or what the paradigm is for trying to parse through political issues and and which candidates to support or whatnot.
1: Yeah, so I, I would say that for me, there's three main incidents that I can remember off the top of my head. That kind of shaped me politically, but then beyond that, I think it was this natural default, what I would say politics of suspicion, so it was like this politic that said there were foreign invaders, there were terrorists, there were immigrants, there's always other people who were out to get us, and it's it's like the weird thing of you know as as some people have eloquently said, we have the cowboys and the Indians, you know, as they portrayed them. You know, and, and you were rooting for the cowboys when you didn't realize like, oh, oh, we're the marginalized people. Mm. Like they want to kill us. And so it was this weird colonization of my mind um that took place largely through Christian education. And so there was that third grade incident where we were voting for this mock election. And then beyond that, there was a moment in I believe it was my seventh grade year, my sixth or seventh grade year, when Bush was running against Gore and when bush was running against gore it was interesting because there seemed to be a large consensus of how people thought within middle school within our academy which was overwhelmingly christian and then there was another like group of people because there's only like 4 or 5 people per grade who are black who are you know black or ethnic minorities and so there was this one conversation that one young lady was having And her father is also a pastor in town of a black church, Um, great man. And I actually didn't know him extremely well, but I knew he was a pastor and I'd heard him preach before and I knew he was an honorable man. And they were having this conversation, I think it was at a lunch table, it was before a history class or something, and a couple of the white students were like, oh, well, so-and-so's a liar. They were talking about the, the candidate at the time, Gore. He's like, oh, Gore's a liar. And she just turned up, she's like, Bush is a liar. And I was like, whoa. Like, And I just kind of looked at her. I was like, yo, how is she a Christian? Her dad's a pastor and they out here supporting Democrats. Like, how is that a thing? Like, You know, I mean, that was just my knee-jerk thought because every class you go to doesn't sh- show the other view charitably. Or every class you go to... The people who you look up to, you don't recognize whether or not they're Republican or Democrat. They just couch it in great Americans or Americans who had flaws or what have you. And so even the people who we saw who were black, who looked like us, they didn't really talk about their politics only in the negative. So it wasn't really an explanation of their politics. It was just an assessment of their politics according to their own white evangelical narrative. So it wasn't interrogating their own politics in light of what this person, a lot of what Dr. King or Malcolm X or Rosa Parks or Richard Allen or Frederick Douglass or Absalom Jones believed. It was rather taking an assessment of what, what they believed and whether or not it was biblical, but but without explaining why. Yeah. And so that was just my initial thought. I was like, huh, okay, that's interesting. And I went home and I talked to my parents about it. I was asking people. And it off put me because I I didn't know. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't understand it. Well, fast forward, um, my third year of college was my first year at Liberty University. And that was that first semester was the election in 2008 between uh, President, now President Barack Obama and Senator John McCain. And so it was that first Obama election. And then I saw the, the rampant partisanship. Now, mind you, I never interrogated my own beliefs. I thought I was right. Like there's a part of politics that intersects with hubris. And so if you believe something, you naturally think the other person is dead wrong, false, extremist, crazy, brainwashed. And that's what, that's how white evangelical political theory taught me to think about everyone who disagreed.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's like, oh, well, if you protest, like, what's the point of being in the country? Well, that was the, the narrative. That's the narrative default thought. And so I remember hosting a forum the night before. And so I hosted a forum and people could tell it was a mixed mixed race forum, mixed ethnicity. And, and people could tell that I was leaning conservative, but it was actually a very interesting conversation where people challenged and they were talking back and forth and I was kind of moderating that and it was kind of a wide open forum. And I don't know why we did it, but it was kind of one of my initiations into my fraternity. They were like, look, you have to host this forum because <laughs> if you're going to be, yeah, they were, they were like, yo, if you're going to be a speaker- for the, for, the, for the frat, you have to host this forum, and we got to see if you can actually do this. And I'm like, so you're inviting random people to come and do this? They're like, that's yeah, they awesome. think it's going to be a debate between two people, but it's actually going to be a, a conversation that you moderate, and you can do this. And I remember thinking, being so mad at them when they told me I had to do it, but now I, I'm so glad because that's kind of what I do <laughs> you know. now, <laughs> so I'm like, oh, okay, this is actually great training. But I remember seeing back and forth the people, and I saw that there was a distinct difference between Black Christian perspective and predominantly white Christian perspective. And it wasn't that it was necessarily 100% to either side, but I saw the difference. And then the next night when President Obama wins, all the Black students, or most of the Black students, because I was not among them, were down in the bottom of the stadium celebrating and the white students were up around the stadium, like in their seats, like scowling with wow. their arms folded. And so there's this juxtaposition. And so it led me to ask this, this question, is there a difference between how white Christians process and how black Christians process? So when you fast forward to Trayvon Martin, which kind of led me to think certain things, but I was still kind of clinging to conservatives, conservatism um, because, again, there was hubris, there was pride, there was arrogance, there was ignorance. And I didn't really listen again to people who were properly charitably expressing the viewpoints that I thought were extreme. the viewpoints that I thought were unbiblical or unchristian, and then Mike Brown was kind of that's the point where I had kind of been leaning one way there were a few more statements and and to be honest with you, meeting you guys was a big thing, like <laughs> meeting you and kind of processing these things from a black Christian perspective, seeing the frustrations that you guys were having. Even when I was tangentially involved, like I was like, man, this is kind of crazy. Like, why are these Christians not getting on board with this? I thought they would love this. And Mike Brown was kind of the big moment where I said, okay, I'm seeing drastically different expressions and interpretations of how this is affected, not just racially and socially, but I think what we do always connects to a political theory, thought, policy, something. And so those are kind of touch point moments that led me to think through like, man, am I actually believing the right thing? Am I believing something that's that's well thought out, that's nuanced? And so now I'm not saying I landed in a place, but I will say that I'm starting to interrogate my past, if that makes oh, sense. Oh, no doubt.
2: Absolutely. And as you were talking, it was you were reminding me of other events like- I, if you study history uh, from academic historians uh it, it will disabuse you of a lot of mythology that you've grown up with especially as 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 regards evangelicalism and so reading on the rise of the religious right was just like you, you pull back the curtains and you see Oz back there the wizard of Oz just you know right. pulling levers and doing all these things to make himself (laughs) look big strings you know strings man but it's it's an operation um and 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 this stuff that that we assume is just biblical was very culturally and politically driven and there are a whole host of issues i don't want to get into the weeds on it but absolutely learning history
1: No, we should man we should get into these weeds man that's what we're here for Man, let's weed it out, man. Come on. You can also <laughs> nah, buy the
2: book and read chapter eight I, or whatever. I got, whatever. You,
1: no. <laughs> I got you. I got you. No, I got you. I got you. I know you're, trying, you're not trying to give away everything. No, I feel but you.
2: That was one of the, the most, um, I don't know if exciting is the right word, but it was one of the chapters that as I was writing, it was like so enlightening as I was going through it. Because one of the big points of uh, the chapter on the rise of the religious right is when the abortion issue comes to the fore uh the the religious right as which means politically conservative these are these are white evangelicals who are who have been mobilized politically for a particular party it's a very partisan type of thing um and when that was happening which was uh 70s especially late 70s um moral majority comes into Existence and all those kinds of things. When that was happening, though, abortion wasn't the main issue. The main issue was uh, opposition to the IRS revoking tax exempt status for Christian mm-hmm. schools, right. particularly <laughs> schools like Bob Jones University, which lost its tax exempt status for its segregationist stance. So it's an incredible that uh, the political mobilization didn't only, but but one of the main catalysts for for bringing about the political mobilization of the religious right was main, maintenance of segregation in Christian schools. And so, you know, yeah. when you learn that history, you're like, okay, well, I got to go back further than the radio show or the news broadcast I'm hearing in 2018 right. and see where all this comes from.
1: And in many ways, it's painful to interrogate the origins of our ideology, but if we don't, we'll remain in balance and ignorance. And so it's it's important for us to take a step back and say we have to do the hard work of self interrogation. Where did I get this idea from? Like I'm still hearing people, and this is you know side note, not necessarily political, but kind of is. But I'm I'm still hearing people use reverse racism in 2018. Like I'm still hearing people like actually saying like reverse racism, is a thing. Like, it's a thing. They don't understand the gaps. They don't understand where it comes from. They don't understand that thought process. They just use it so casually. And and it's making me think, man, a lot of people don't do the hard work, the painful work of self-interrogation. And so as we as we kind of move on and talk about, because I want to get to some principles here, before we get to principles, what would you say is the most difficult part of being a part of this political process right now? You know, what's the most difficult part for you? What's the thing that you struggle with the most? Because I hear an answer typically from Christians, but I'm very curious from a, from a Black Christian man perspective, like what is that for you?
2: For me, the most difficult part of the political process right now is how radical to be in the sense- mm-hmm. It, it, it's it's politics, right? And so there's a pragmatic aspect to it in the sense that any change might have to be incremental, any change might have to come through compromise. But if you look back through the historical record, typically uh, those incremental changes and those compromises uh, don't lead to, at least not in a direct line, to the end goal that you're seeking, uh, whatever that might be. And so there's a school of thought in activism and in politics where you just hold the line. You say this is what we are asking for or demanding and we're not going to back down on it. And typically when I'm when I'm talking about folks who are who are drawing that hard line, it's in advocacy for the marginalized, right? It's 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 for people to have enough money to live on. It's for people to have uh mm-hmm. enough medical care it's for people to to be able to seek asylum in the united states right so it's not like these people i'm talking about are are radically standing for something that would be detrimental to human flourishing it's something that would lead to human flourishing but then you have to wonder is this going to be effective because there's another side that sees it differently um and they're not going to to do what you want probably not ever if you hold to everything that that you're asking for uh but if you if you negotiate it's it's viewed as compromise or sometimes it is compromise so my difficulty is you know when to say no this this absolutely mm-hmm. has to be this way and when to say all right we can we can compromise even though i know the compromise is not going to lead to flourishing for this group of people.
1: Right, right. Yeah. So it's it's fascinating because when you talk about radicalism and and how radical you should or shouldn't be as a believer or as a participator in the political process, my mind goes back to this incredible, insightful book um by Dr. Raphael Warnock, which is called The Divided Mind of the Black Church. And I don't know if you had the chance to read it, but the central tension and premise that he says, the central theological tension of the Black church in America historically is radicalism. And so he makes this pronouncement in the framing of the book that the Black church has been shaped both by racism, as we see in slavery, Civil War, Jim Crow, et cetera, and also anti-racism, um, which we see in freedom movements and civil rights movements. And so that it's produced this diverse response to oppression. So We have this like really mixed bag of, <laughs> of responses in some ways very conservative in some ways radical and so his whole idea in in framing the book is what is the mission of the church is it is it to save souls is it to correct the social order or is it both and so he brilliantly puts it as you know is it the slavery is our main focus the slavery of sin or the sin of slavery Right. It's this tension between evangelicalism and liberationism. Mm -hmm. So he talks about the this tension and so it I identify with it because the biggest struggle for me in a similar way to you is how do I parse out personal piety versus prophetic public witness? Like what does how does all that intersect and what do I think about when I go into the voting booth? Because the powerful thing about my background is I have a unique understanding of kind of conservative thinking because I was steeped in it. I merited in it. I'm still in some of those environments as far as where the city I live in, the people that I see. Um, I'm always going to be interacting with them. They're my Facebook friends. If some of them listen to this podcast. I mean, so there's there's always going to be that interaction with that very strong conservative thought. But then on, on another sense, there's this idea now that once you see anti-racism, once you see the radical nature of, number one, the call of, of God and the scriptures for justice, and then also the people who took that call and directly contextualized it to the American context, to the American experience, to the Black church, to Black theology, to womanist theology, now you can't unsee it. So now I'm like, okay, well, I can't unsee this, but I'm shaped by both. And so a, a lot of what I have struggled with is what do I hang on to and what do I put down? What do I let go of? And what is a principle that I should hang on to that needs to be refined? And what's a principle that makes sense, but in reality, it's just imbalanced and it's slanted. And it's presented in a narrative that doesn't do proper justice to a nuanced representation of what that actually means. Ooh. Um, so those are those are things that those are things that I'm I'm thinking every time we enter into this political process, we're entering into an election cycle, and we're thinking about administrations and we're seeing these things. I'm like, man. So what is the tension between what do I hang on to? What do I let go of? And when I say I'm growing in it, I'm careful to use the word growing um, because I think I, I I know I haven't grown enough. If that <laughs> sure. makes sense. Um, I know I still have some more growing to do, more understanding to do. But I think I think I've I've kind of crafted at least some principles that I want to apply politically. That as I think through politics, I want to think through these particular things. And a lot of these things go against that politic of suspicion that I was raised in, I was steeped in, and against that conservative culture war mindset yes. that would force me to think as of people as opponents that are coming to take what I have or what is rightfully mine, um, a colonizing mentality, so to speak. Um, and so let's talk about some of these. What are some principles that we apply politically? Now, I've been kicking it back and forth to you, Jamar, but I'll kind of take the lead on this first one. And this first one is going to kind of sound like I'm the historian on the podcast, but I'm not. You're fine. just rubbing off on you you me. Okay. You're just rubbing you off got- on me. The first principle I would say is I ask this question, what which agenda on the ballot causes us to rehearse and replay our historic sins. Okay, so what I mean by that is this. America isn't America in a vacuum. We don't step into a political, you know, election or step into a ballot booth and we don't we don't fill out a ballot in isolation or in a vacuum from from where we've come from, and I think a lot of people act as though we don't have a history of replaying the same historic ills and sins again and again and again in our in our policies. Right. And so, what is causing us to replay the same issues again and again? And I think it's because people just aren't looking at. The political process as a continuation of a historic narrative. So every candidate is pushing forward a historic narrative. And most of the candidates that we will interact with are pushing forward a narrative that I would say depends on American exceptionalism, but beyond that depends on American idealism. Which is the idea that America can't do any wrong. Or if they have done wrong, we've corrected it in the past. And so now we just need to prevent doing wrong in the future, not we're doing wrong right now. Huh. <laughs> right. So I, I, I'm trying to think specifically, you know, I'd say three, maybe four things that I'm trying to see if this agenda is replaying is greed. Is this pushing us to greed and individualism? Um, Racism? Is this pushing us to otherize ethnic minorities? Xenophobia? Is this pushing us to otherize people? And then a a general callousness towards those who are marginalized and specifically the poor. So just those four things, greed, racism, xenophobia, and a callous political mind that is anti-compassionate. I'm just looking and seeing, is this agenda just replaying that same thing? Because if you're replaying any of those four things, it's going to be hard for me to cast a ballot for you. Now, this is different from issues. I think people are saying, oh, well, it's this issue, and I'm a this issue voter, and it's about these two things. And this is much more about the narrative that we embrace rather than the issues where we land on those practically.
2: Does that make sense? Yeah, that's huge when you say narrative, because politics is not separate from the rest of the story we tell ourselves. Politics is part of that. And unless we interrogate the story, the narrative of it, I don't think we'll actually understand our place in the political process or the presuppositions that we're coming with when we Mm -hmm. enter the voting booth or
0: what have you. So I think, yeah, it makes good sense. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and certificate programs. Begin your master's or certificate program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit.
1: That's a big one also because the Old Testament prophets are challenging the people of God to stop doing the cycle. Like, that's what they're constantly doing. Like, y'all always do this. It's the same cycle. Like, y'all doing the same exact thing every single time. Can you not do that? And so it's if you see that narrative, if you see that pattern within the scriptures, now you're saying, okay, well, well, we are also capable of replaying that narrative as a matter of fact we should assume we've done it without even thinking about it we should assume not that we've got it all figured out but we should actually assume you know what we probably just like the people in in israel in the old testament who were doing the same thing to the people who didn't have who were doing the same thing to the people who were coming in and or who who were in the same city and they were like well you don't worship the same god or you don't do this so i'm just not gonna care about you right like so Anyway, I don't want to take all your time, but I just had to give you a historian. <laughs>
2: I'm
1: going to give you a historian answer. Uh, but what about you? What are, what, are some, what is one principle that you would say you apply politically?
2: I mean, it might only be one principle, honestly, because. Uh oh, uh oh. It's just. Plot twist. It's very simple.
1: I'm coming with like eight <laughs> principles, you and you you're like, list. man, I only got <laughs> one thing
2: I'm thinking about, homie. When I when I look at the issues and when I look at policy proposals and when I look at particular politicians, I'm asking what works for the most marginalized members of our community. And this comes from personal mm-hmm. experience and study. So when I was a school teacher and a principal, but especially as a principal, my main job really was to set the culture of the school Um cast the vision and and help teachers, students, parents, and all constituents catch that vision and work toward it. And so that vision was only good to the degree that it served the students who, I won't say needed the most help, but needed the most support in a way. Uh, so these are the students on a very basic level who were most likely to get bullied Um, whether it's because of the way they looked or they talked or whatever, you know, this is middle school. So, you know, um, these are the students who didn't have many material resources. Uh, so that affected, you know, what field trips we went on or, or, or how we, uh, broke down the costs for students or how we offered support to families, uh, that were struggling financially financially. Um, this went for, you know, even geographic location. Uh, we're in a rural environment. And so a lot of consideration went to when do we start school? Because when did the buses run? And when did they get there for the students who are furthest out? And what time are they getting home and things of that nature? And it, 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 you can broaden that out to living in the Delta, which for both Arkansas and Mississippi is the most materially, materially impoverished part of the state. It's also the part of the state that has the highest concentration of black people. And as I look at state politics, I'm like, well, if it doesn't work in the Delta, I don't want to see it. Because if it's not working Hmm. for Hmm. the most marginalized group, then you're just leaving them out. You're not, you're not, incorporating them into your calculations. And it's too easy to overlook them because they don't have earthly power. They don't have political power. They don't have financial power. They don't have social networks and connections to get things done like other people. And so if you overlook that group that that can do on an earthly standpoint, not much for you, then I know where your heart is. I know where your values are. Um, conversely, if you are promoting policies and laws that can help, then what you're doing is, is you're tackling the toughest problems, the toughest issues. And if you're coming up with, with solutions that can stand up to those toughest issues, then you're good around the rest of the state. You're good with other groups who aren't facing as many obstacles. And so, you know, if, if I can beat the university of Alabama I'm gonna be good when I play the University of Mississippi or some other team. You know what I'm saying?
1: Hey man, don't get in. Don't get into this, man. <laughs> don't get into this. Uh, don't be mentioning the evil empire on this oh, podcast. Sorry, sorry. but
2: you—you you you in South Alabama in. though, right?
1: What <laughs> this boy cussing me out on on live podcasts. But you get what I'm saying, it's like, anyway, uh Absolutely, I think that's that's actually very that's enlightening that's enlightening and challenging and that's extremely helpful
2: so like like what i said you know it's 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 complicated like going back actually truly radical would be i define radical as um those who would choose to work outside of the established system so the truly radical people are the ones saying we need to we need to we need to trash capitalism and be a socialist country. The truly radical people are
1: (laughs) um, you know
2: black nationalists.
1: Yeah, like what's radical is like is (laughs) weird. Like what does that even mean?
2: It's it's a moving target to a certain extent, but you know, there on a spectrum, radical would be black nationalists saying, Hey, uh was Malcolm X saying, you know, the 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 country owes us for 300 years of unpaid labor. We don't want to integrate with y'all. We want our own country. (laughs) We want our own land and y'all should pay for it and y'all should divvy it out. And then Mm -hmm. we'll govern ourselves. Right. Like that's radical to to an extent. Um, So, you know, qualifying all of that. But but, you know, starting with how does this affect what Jesus will call the least of these and, and, and going from there?
1: Yeah, that was kind of my number two as well, which is, you know, what pushes people groups away from flourishing? Like, that's a question I'm asking. Like, what pushes people groups away from it? Recognizing that much of American politics has been set up to keep certain groups from getting a seat at the table, much of American politics has been set up to keep certain groups from having rights to exercise so that they would be able to enact. You know policies and positions and bills that would actually be able to help them, so a big part of that is are you believing in and espousing a political theology or political activism that is individualistic and so if it is solely for you, if you start with well, this is what happened when so and so was in office, I paid more in this way and Look, I'm not saying that doesn't matter. I'm just saying if that's the only thing you think about, if that's the only thing you consider, if that's the only idea, is like, how did this affect me? And how did this affect me from the standpoint of a representation of a broader group of people who have a right to be here? Then I'm kind of sitting back and I'm saying, ah, we probably won't get along We probably won't see eye to eye because when it comes down to it, you're going to make decisions about who you feel should and shouldn't be here based upon which group you think you fit in. And that's the individualistic side of it that would make me say I feel much more comfortable voting for someone who is not going to push people groups away from flourishing and away from the power that could eventually, you know, vote them out. You know, it's the whole idea of Amendment Four in the past election for the state of Florida, which is granting incarcerated men and women mm-hmm. um, the ability to vote. And what had previously happened was a previous governor had done a clemency process, but there were there were the fewest number of clemency grantings in his governorship than in any previous and when you recognize that the governorship was decided by you know was decided by 1%, 1 percentage point each year that he was elected. Then you sit back and say well him leaving 12,000 you know incarcerated formerly incarcerated people off the clemency list him just dragging his feet to actually grant them the right to vote again actually has an outcome in elections. Um and so that to me is a, as a major thing. And then since you don't have anything else, I'll just say one more since you didn't come <laughs> with a list. You just came I got with one one. Thing. That is well. Yeah. I got but, one you more. Know, I but,
2: mean, I got one more.
1: Oh, you got one more. Okay. Well, yeah, give us your one more. Dude. Give us your one more. And then I'm gonna get my last one. We've, we al- we've
2: already touched on this, but it it is, it is canceling the culture wars. So anything that smacks of culture wars to me yes. is automatically yes. under a microscope. Um, and what you mean is we just you mean white evangelical
1: culture war as white evangelicalism has yes, defined it. Yes, that's
2: the that's the, the yes. <laughs> um, that's the main context in which I hear the term culture wars is white evangelical political deployment. And then that that's the issues, right? When you look at people uh and and why they vote the way they vote, it's usually uh abortion, Supreme Court picks, um Recently, it's been religious freedom, but by that, folks mean white evangelical religious freedom and uh, more or less deprioritizing other religions uh, to a certain degree. And and it's this very small set of issues. It's small government, uh, for some reason, that has been associated with being uh, the more Christian way. And I think these are the these are the kinds of issues that we're talking about earlier in the show when we're saying we sort of absorbed these ideas or we were steeped in this culture and that has been so detrimental because for me as a black christian it it was telling me not to pay attention to other issues that were highly pertinent to my communities um issues like Incarceration issues like uh, access to the ballot and and voter suppression, issues uh, such as funding for public education and the structure of public education these kinds of things were, right, were sort of right. off the table uh, before when 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 I was sort of steeped in a a, a culture war political type of environment and so now it, it, and it's also a more fundamental posture toward politics and american culture in general it's a very us versus them it's a very separatist kind of idea it's here's our list and if you can't check every single box you're against us it's not just that you're different it's not that we have to figure out how to get along in a pluralistic society with over 300 million people um it's that you're wrong and I have to I have to distance myself from you in order to protect my own sort of spiritual and theological integrity. Right. You will
1: pollute me. Exactly. You will infect me. So
2: any, anything that sort of smacks of that, of the world is icky and dirty, and we as the, the Christians who believe all the right things and take all the right stances on politics, I'm very, very sensitive to and cautious about at this point.
1: Right. Right. That's good. That's very helpful. I would say um, my last one is, and this is as a Christian, it's something I've kind of been saying to myself thinking through. It's that as a Christian, I don't believe when it comes to politics, especially as a pastor as well, I don't believe I should be partisan, but I I also shouldn't be positionless and i think there is this move in christian political thought to be almost positionless political Bruh, agents say that say that. and it's this idea and and i mean i'm just i'm being and this is yo cuz some people may may, may, mis- may misinterpret this maybe like man you're talking about this person that person i'm not talking about anyone i'm just saying seriously i just want us to think through this because it is an idea of well both parties are wrong and because both parties are wrong we shouldn't be for any party and i'm like well well i don't, mm-hmm. I don't know about that at some point you yes. have to take a position oh. you know what i'm saying like at some point you can't be positionless you can't be this like positionless cipher of consistency because at some point the your positionlessness is going to cause you to be inconsistent <laughs> like you say you hold these values and these values lead you to abstain from being partisan but yet you won't take a position when you hear specific things I mean, when you it's like when when they, when they're separating kids from families at the border that's not a time to be like well you know I think both parties are kind of bad no oh. that's they doing that that that's them that's 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 not both parties this is wrong we need to stop this like not that's not the time to be like well you know uh, and I get that there's a sense now, which, you know, 2018 politics is bombastic. A lot of us, it's dramatic. A lot of us don't know political theory. We don't understand the compromise and we don't understand any of this. But I, I will, I will say that, you know, at some point in time, you have to take a stand and say, you know what? You violated this too much. I'm kind of done. Like you should be out. Like we should actually encourage people not to give you another turn, like because you continually violate human dignity. So this is kind of a problem for us, and and I think Christians sometimes are are like, whoa, whoa, should we do that? Should we say that? No, it's if you have values and you care about the marginalized beyond it, you care about the soul of any particular people group, and you care about their 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 moral fidelity, any sort of moral stance, any sort of moral credibility. At some point, you have to look at it and say, you know what? I could point out and say, man, the church is is voting for both parties. But the reality (laughs) is that the majority of people are not voting for both parties. No, they're not. They're voting for one particular party in one particular people group. In the white evangelical people group, they're not voting for both parties equally. Speak to your party. Speak to the people. And that's how you, what I just that to me. How are you this, gonna bring
2: that up for the last one, man? There's so much in that. Listen, so man, I'm just saying.
1: That. I know. I'm Look, just, and I'm not, and I'm not trying to be like, yo. So both of us, we recognize that you have to be prophetic to your tribe, and I get that. And I think there are issues even within Black Church that we can talk about, and that's what a lot of the divided mind of Black Church talks about. And and there's even stuff that he didn't even say in there that I probably would go into. And exposed, which we've discussed here before, but I'm just saying, man, at some point in time, look, our fear of being partisan is going to resign people to die bro <laughs> like i just don't want to yes. be bombastic but people are dying like so you're talking about well i don't want to be partisan and they they, like man we want to take healthcare away from people well you know i don't want to be partisan i know that the, you know the democrats and this and i'm like bro but they want to take healthcare away from people so i can't in that moment you force me just, to be
2: you force me to listen, take this position it's, you can be political without being partisan and and that's a distinction we got to make right i certainly hope so (laughs) like 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 you, you can't be so fearful of being perceived as partisan that you fail to take a stance on justice and morality and i think it's a a very privileged position to take to say well both sides have it wrong uh because these are affecting down to earth real life bread and butter issues for human beings image bearers right like that's our first priority is love god love others and so if we see something that is unloving toward other people it doesn't matter which party is doing it you say this is this is not the way god intended it in terms of human flourishing and so i'm going to call it out and it may happen to be more one party than the other at a particular time that's not being partisan that exactly it's it's you you remember in
1: if if it is I don't well, care no, like if it if it is I don't in care in Joshua
2: right where where the angel of the Lord appears and he says are you uh for us or for our enemies He says, no I'm I'm for God right and what you mean for yeah. whose
1: side like what you talking about
2: if we're on the side of God that's our answer are you Republican are you Democrat I'm like whatever I'm 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 for justice I'm for Jesus. Well, and that's but that's
1: the thing, though, is you can't, that's what I'm talking about. And I think that's been my difficulty is we say, well, I'm not for either side. Okay. You just said something different, though. You just said, I'm for justice. And so if you're if you're saying that's what you are for, okay, well, well, then you're actually putting flesh on a skeleton. You gotta follow that. You're not just saying I'm you're not just saying I'm just this politically neutral. Mm-hmm. Because I think there's the the privilege that I find in it is like you you are you are insinuating that you have found a way to be perfectly balanced, like you you found a way to be perfectly. And I'm like, bro, you can't. And this is just something I'm I'm dealing with, even local community, everything. People are like, man, you just, you just don't take a side. And you so I'm like, bro, this is harmful. And if this is harming people, I'm not gonna sit back and be like, ah, man, well, you know. The, the the compromise and the this. No, I'm not in the office. My job isn't to actually get the bill through Congress. My job is not to write the bill. My job is to say, look, this right here is a violation. It's a violation of human dignity. According to the scriptures, according to what I believe about justice, it's a violation. We got to change this. And yes, does that mean that sometimes there's apparent inconsistency because our political process is inconsistent? Of course. We know that, and we and we accept that, and we recognize that. But what I'm saying is, on the whole, you have to make an you have to make an assessment about the parties. Yeah. You have to make an assessment, and that assessment is going to lead you. We're in a two party system. That assessment is typically going to lead you to vote for a group of people that is flawed and that's messed up and got some bad policies yep. in the mix. We know that, but on the whole. If a group of people is pushing forward an agenda that marginalizes groups of people intentionally, uses rhetoric, uses language, they know what's going on. They keep showing you the same thing. I can't sit up here and be like, well, I mean, I see it, but you know, both sides are really... I'm like, bro, (laughs) at some point you got to take a side. Like, yo... No, we for the people who are being harmed. I'm for the people who don't have health insurance. I'm for them. I'm taking their side. I need them to be okay. Like, I'm for that them. word, man. I'm for the people that they separating at the, at, at the border from their from parents. I'm for those kids. Like, I'm not for. I'm for the refugees that because this administration set 30,000 as the limit, one of the lowest limits in recent memory, I'm for them. And I can also still be for the unborn. I can still be for, like, Listen, <laughs> there's no, we can be the, for it. Like, yo, I the just. The fundamental principle. You better stop me, no, man. Look, you better cut my look, mic off. This like, is, for This real. is a
2: word. This is what we need to hear now. And I think the fundamental principle is justice takes sides. Justice is not neutral. Justice is not on the fence. Justice is, like you said, for the marginalized. Justice is for the oppressed. And at some points, that's gonna mean you roll with Republicans. At some point, that's going to mean you roll with Democrats. We also have to be cognizant of the fact that if you look at policy platforms, especially in the 21st century, there's going to be a bulk of policies that seem to work for minorities. And there's going to be a a, a party that has a bulk of policies that you can't really connect those dots. Now, some people say you can, and I think we can have conversations about that. But don't be afraid to listen, I I also think at the end of the day we need Christians who are Republicans and Christians who are Democrats. in a in a dual party system. We need believers who are salt and light within their own party to be prophetic to their own people. But y'all
1: gotta be, be honest, honest, though, man. Y'all gotta oh, be that's, honest, that's a bro. non-negotiable. Ugh.
2: Um, just be honest, bro. Like we just like, go I ahead. Just I'm, made, sorry. I'm sorry. We 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 have done a a terrible job on discipling people politically because what it amounts to in so many cases is one of two things. Either you're hyper partisan and if we're talking about white evangelicals, that means you're Republican, straight ticket. Or you're supposedly, which is not possible, but you're supposedly neutral. You don't take sides. I think both positions are bad. I think you side with justice, and that means you do take sides.
1: Yeah, and that's that's the thing I don't understand. Like people, and this is a question I've I've received so many times since 2014. I'll just address it, man. We just look, y- y'all know we just there. It. We we there it. right now. You we don't one. Want... Uh, listen, no, <laughs> you don't even know where I'm going. <laughs> but he's he doing that to gas me up. He's like, yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> nah, but since 2014, been on all these panels, and the question that always seems to come up at is weird at these panels. Where we talking about justice, where we talking about police brutality, where we talking about unjust violence against black bodies. Like, where we talking about this, people always talk about, well, why are black churches just voting Democrat? And I'm sitting back here and I'm like, you answered your own question. You asking that, you answered your own question. Because rather than putting the energy into challenging your elected officials to care enough about this to put their capital, their necks on the line. To make sure that our kids aren't shot in the street and we are not separated from our families. You just want to talk about the political machinations of us voting for Democrats. Well, hey, if you put forward a candidate who cares about our lives and cares about us making sure that we have a decent wage and cares about us having health care and cares about not redlining us and gentrifying. I mean, if you put forward that, okay, well, we'll talk. But that's the idea, like, we are so focused on the appearance of what it looks like to be considered partisan, that we are running ourselves, again, I've said this before, we we being so moderate that we become there mediocre. Yo, there's you got to have some sort of side here. <laughs> Administer justice, the end. Do that and live. <laughs> like, this is Bible, guys. So I just... Look, I'm not saying there is there's there is no perfect candidate and there's no perfect party and there's no party I'm like, man, this party mm-hmm. is perfect. What I am saying is it's very clear, and I'm just going to speak plainly, it's very clear that the Republican Party is not concerned with making the marginalized a part of their platform. Right. They are concerned with making one group, the unborn, a part of their platform. When it's be. But everyone else, and even that is conditional, which we uh, can, you know, that's another podcast for another time. We'll, we'll get into that. We'll get into that later. They are, they are very comfortable using black bodies as, as a political football to move that particular agenda down the field. But they are not comfortable with advocating for black bodies once they exit the womb. But that's another thing. Okay, not in education, not in economics, not in healthcare, not in any other way. But you're telling me you care about babies. Okay, fine, whatever. I don't believe you. But beyond that, what we don't see is we don't see Christians demanding from that Republican Party, you will have the marginalized on this platform. What do you what do you do with the poor? Are you just assuming that they don't work? Are you assuming that they don't care? Man, what are you going to do with the people who don't have health care? Are you just just throwing your hands up and saying, oh, well, too bad, so sad? Like, what are you going to do about the people who are coming and claiming asylum? Why are you picking and choosing? Why are you looking at bodies in the streets dead from state violence and just turning the
2: other way? Blaming it on the victim.
1: Or blaming (laughs) it on them. Why is it always someone else's fault? What is wrong with the system? Like... The the political. I just we just don't see it from that party. Let's just be honest. Political
2: Calculus is very (laughs) different. So you have some groups of people that are calculating how to keep and grow power. You have other groups of people that are calculating. How do we survive? How do we live? How do we how do we eat? How do we get to the doctor? How do we not get killed for being the wrong color? in the wrong place, all of these things are political in a certain dimension. And so when black Christians vote (laughs) as a block, we're just like, who is not out to, (laughs) let me put it this way.
1: (laughs) Who who doesn't want, who, (laughs) who cares that we might die? yes who like, cares that we might die bro like no 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 gas no look we we see it no cap as they say as the as my youth group said no cap say? No, no cap, cap. Okay. here
2: see i stay up on 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 the latest lingo from you and your students Boy, i'm late okay.
1: man i'm late <laughs> but no but look, cap who are the people who are not gonna see us dead in the street and just be like ah
2: Oh well. What what's for dinner? What the Republican leadership is banking on is not a numerical victory. They know that in terms of numbers they are or soon will be a minority. What they're banking on is that they can grab enough power now to set the system up to where even if they don't have the numbers they still win. They still win every time. And if you look at Congress, uh, the number of women in the Republican Party as elected officials in Congress has gone down. It's at a record high with Democrats. And right now, Democrats are forming a coalition of minorities, which makes it difficult because every minority group has its own set of issues and, and policies they're trying to get passed. But Absolutely. At the same yes. time. Yes. Yes. Um, there's there's. At least lip service. Again, we qualify this all the time. No party's perfect. No party's not racist. Uh, but there's at least lip service to trying to, uh, you know, r- respect uh, victims of sexual violence, uh, to to hear uh, the voices of immigrants, to attend to the concerns of black people. You just don't see that. And you can look at any election. Uh, but in in 2018, 2016, you can go as far back as you want. Uh, in the in the past 50 or 60 years or so, and there's been a pattern among each of the parties, and so the fundamental calculus is very very different. And this is not a blanket statement. There are plenty of black people who are conservative. Plenty of black people who are Republican. Yeah, know
1: but what we saying, majority, man. Come on, you can't look at this administration. Majority. Over the last two years, and be like, man, we just been, it's just been. I'm sorry, look. It's just been a, been a place t- where people just been affirmed and their dignity. When you start talking reckless about black women, when you start challenging reporters, calling reporters dumb, calling their their enemy questions the racist, enemy of the people, I mean, you just can't do that type of
2: stuff. Like, and then this we're just going to sit back and be like, this is oh, not well. partisan. It's just justice.
1: Right? And this, it's not. you know. And justice isn't sideless, bro. You have to you have to pick a side.
2: Justice takes sides, like period. And so, like, look, much love to all y'all, wherever you are.
1: (laughs) You know, this is wrong. You know, we're in trouble. He's like, yo, much love to everybody. You know, much love. I
2: just gotta soften the blow for some people. But I'm
1: like, I can't. I can't. I can't. Just no.
2: I'm saying no. This is survival for people. And like, if you don't get that, that's a fundamental issue you've got to wrestle with. You gotta wrestle with absolutely because it. it's not the case. It's not the case. And many people believe this, but it is not the case that millions upon millions of black people, including black Christians, have just been duped by the Democrats. It's not the case.
1: Yeah, like we 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 actually have the power of of intellectual thought and like critical thinking. Like we do have that ability. Like I promise you. Like we know who we're dealing with, and we know just because we vote someone into office. It does not mean that everything's gonna be all right. Power is not, ultimate power is not granted to politicians. We know this. But we also can see that one side speaks to us and one side doesn't. And we can't Mm -hmm. lie about that. We can't just be like, oh, well, you know, I hope, I hope, no, we're not in a vacuum. We're in real life. And the world is broken, and that's just what it is. And we need to stop recording. We need to stop recording. We need to stop this, <laughs> yes. We Let's do this stop. next time, okay? So we did part two. Let's <laughs> do part three next time because I think it's important
2: We gotta to, yeah.
1: to talk about books and resources that have shaped us in this way. So obviously there's the scriptures, and that goes without saying, but some people don't believe that it is what it is. Obviously, there's the scriptures, but then beyond that, there are books that have helped us to think through some of the modern current issues that we're dealing with in a way that we think is helpful, in a way that is um, encouraging, in a way that is more nuanced, balanced, whatever you want to, whatever helpful word you want to use. So let's do that. Next week, we'll give you our list. And you know we got our top five cultural artifacts of the year that's coming up following week. We may do two next week because we know we've missed. So who knows what'll happen. But tune in next time and you'll find out on past the mic. Don't reach, don't, don't at us. Do not at us, y'all. <laughs> don't know. send this to so and so. Don't at us.
2: Don't at us. We said like, what we when said. When you know they're just gonna disagree. Like send it we to said what you we know. said. Your friend or whatever, like, hey, no, here's we what We said what we said. What we said. That's but what I'm saying. there's some folks out there who are like, ooh, look what they said this time. What are you gonna say? What are you gonna nah, do? Nah, like-
1: man, this ain't. We not. We not gonna engage in it. We told y'all previously. We we dead to that. It's not. We not even looking at it. But I'm just That's saying, hilarious. don't add That's us. Hilarious. We said what we said. We out. We'll be back next week.
2: Politics. Peace. <laughs>